Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. There were already plenty of people worried about what was going to happen to their jobs and their careers in the sports business as new technology and the data era made them question the relevance of their skills in today's talent marketplace. Covid has amplified that fear. At every level, from college leavers aspiring to break into the industry through first and second jobbers right up to the C-suite. All this at a time when the diversity of that talent pool looks so narrowly defined by gender, ethnicity, age and mindset. So, in today's podcast, I talked to Amanda Phone, founder and CEO of F1 Recruitment, who brings 35 years of experience to these questions. In addition to running F1, Amanda is the co-founder of BAME 2020 Diversity Program, which launched in 2016 as a way of raising the issue of inclusion, diversity and social mobility within the sports sector. We talk about white fragility, office culture and the very potential that COVID will create a lost generation of sport business talent. Here is Amanda Phone. What's F1? What's just give us a bit of background in your relationship to the sports business? Okay, so I um, am founder and CEO of F1 Recruitment and Search and set up in 2004. So we've been going for about 16 years now. Blimey. We are experts in marketing, digital, comms, social media, PR stakeholder engagement um, and sports marketing recruitment we have a specialist sports marketing team and we recruit for all those disciplines I've just mentioned including commercial teams um, across the all the pillars of the sport or the sports sectors agencies rights holders NGBs media um, media owners um, sponsorship teams inside leading um, brands And and when I say sports I'm including entertainment as well, sports and entertainment. So we've got a real expertise in the sports and entertainment sector. Okay. So since 2004, I'm counting at least two recessions between here and there. I'm, I'm just wondering how this one, we're going to talk in a minute about, you know, COVID and the impact and what you're seeing, but you are at the absolute sort of epicenter of people's, there's, a, there's an anxiety around the place about what's happening, obviously. Um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you what you're going to see. But my first question, I guess, is, is this uh, like previous recessions? Is this like the banking crisis moment or is does this feel different? So I've worked through loads of recessions. I actually started my career um, back in um, probably the worst recession of the last 30 years in the, in the 80s. And this kind of slightly reminds me of that although I was a lot younger then and kind of just took it that that was normal um so it does feel different this time and I think it feels different because there's so much ambiguity about um an end game I mean Mm -hmm. the the financial recession was different um I think we all knew that things would improve more quickly and I think this I mean and particularly for some sectors are really feeling it more than others and sports entertainment for obvious reasons is is one that is feeling it really badly so I think it's the ambiguity about when things are going to pick up and I think that the sense I'm getting um is that it's going to be quarter one quarter two next year before we see anything like any kind of return to normal and there's no doubt that the agency sector particularly is is really hurting so how does the, the the sort how does it work? I'm just wondering about the sort of and you you're right to identify the different sectors and but 
and there will be different answers to this question, but I'm just wondering what the sort of corporate response was. I imagine there's a shock moment and we had that certainly in what, you know, initially, and then there's a furlough, which com- which sort of complicates the picture, mm. but how do, how do companies respond? Do they just suddenly say, right, okay, we're not recruiting anyone full stop and we're just going to have to wait to wait and see, or is it, is it more nuanced than that? Uh, well, I think what happened was everything went on hold on about March the 22nd and I pretty much everything went on. I mean, senior assignments went on hold, more junior assignments just were, were parked indefinitely. Um, right. We had various recruitment processes that, that were midway. They were put on hold. They have not been picked up on again um, yet. Uh, there are pockets of the sector that are that are recruiting. We do have we do have briefs on, and those have been they've, they've those come have come on in the last I'd say month, and specifically around digital e-commerce content social media partnerships, and that's kind of. I guess obvious areas that you would think people would be trying to shore up their, um, their, their 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 talent, but in terms of live recruitment briefs, it's been since April, May, June, the first quarter of this financial year has been pretty dead. Um, I think it's picked up a little bit in the last um, in the last few weeks, but no, I mean the, the immediate reaction was put everything on hold and look after your staff first and foremost. I think leaders had to you know react incredibly quickly to get their staff working safely from home then the understanding of the furlough scheme you know it was not straightforward I run a business and my finance lady and I I mean it it, it, you have to work through the furlough and then you have to do all the um kind of the, the the balancing of who to furlough who not to furlough how you communicate the furloughing to the people that have been the people that have stayed the massive balancing act and none of this you could do face to face you had to do it all um all remotely so i think that was the first six weeks and then of course we've had different iterations of the furlough um and so you go through the same um the same process again i think organizations just have pretty much put all of their um recruitment um, on hold certainly for the first um two to three months i think a lot of in-house recruiters um, were furloughed as well so I think some of them now the official furlough um, is has finished um, at the end of June and now we're on to kind of part-time furloughing and people being allowed to work on a part-time basis and be and be furloughed some of the in-house recruitment people are coming back um, and picking up from where they left um, and that, that that is that is kick-starting some activity but I would say that the sports marketing sector specifically is 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 not busy at the moment. And the the I mean, you mentioned the agencies, and and I guess my preconception would be that they're a sort of they are an early signal, are they? In terms of they're they're the ones that feel things first, and are they more flexible? Do you think in terms of the way in which they're set up, are they a bit more able to? sort of size up and down compared to say you know a rights holder or a a big Mm, sponsor not necessarily because i think everybody's been speaking about a hub and spoke model inside agencies for a long time for as long as i can remember and at the end of the day they tend to have a pretty permanent staff and then they will bring in contractors around the edge and this time contractors were let go quite quickly uh, to get rid of um, cost quite quickly so uh, yes in theory, having a hub and spoke model would mean you have got more 
flexibility and you can sort of downsize and upsize um, a bit more quickly. But I think a lot of agencies have been caught out, frankly, with probably too much, too much overhead, and too much fixed costs. And I think that they are using this time now to really have a good hard look at um, the, the, their, the structure of the business, um, their model, how, you know, what they charge for clients for, how they charge clients. And um, I think we'll see a lot of slimming down around the age. But frankly, Richard, this has been, this should have happened a while ago. All that the COVID-19 has done has actually um, accelerated a something that probably was going to happen anyway. Because there's a lot of, well, I say a lot, the, you know, a number of the bigger agencies, they're quite highly leveraged. They've been bought and sold several yeah. times. They're, there's, And they're set up for a sort of, you know, the expectation of very fast growth. And now this has hit. So, I'm, you know, in terms of their ability to respond um, is sort of related to their financial, you know, just the broader what sort of business they are and who owns them and how that Correct. ownership and, and how committed the ownership structure is to sports and entertainment. Definitely. Mm. There are groups that are really investing and 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 um cushioning and there'll be others that, that that won't do it and will just decide that they, you know, that that they're out of that um sector. I mean the irony of it is is that if you had to pick any sector that you'd say was pretty foolproof, um and one that was 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 it would have been sports and entertainment. Um and you know, it will come back. It it, it is going to come back and it's going to come back with a vengeance. And I think that, that you know, the the I mean, what I'm more concerned about, to be honest, is that we lose good people out of the sector because they cannot hang on for the uptick, which, mm. be, you know, particularly at the sort of, I know, two years to nine years experience that they just we lose them completely because uh, you know, we can't give any of the, that level candidate um, the, any kind of comfort that the market will pick up even by January for them to be back in work. And you know, the challenge is, is for us to keep them interested enough to, so that they perhaps try and find contract work, maybe in a kind of sideline sector, but, um, you know, consumer tech, for example, but that they so they use their transferable skills. They do come back in because there's no doubt that the sector will pick up again. It's just about when. And when it does, of course, um, then we're, everyone's going to be falling over themselves to find um, talent. The other real irony of the situation is that up until February this year, we were almost in a full employment market. So we had organisations coming to us for uh, you know, to, to to look for for, for talent, and um, you know you were lucky if you could get a shortlist of three people together at you know account exec or senior associate level. It doesn't matter where whether you're looking agency or um, in house rights holder. It was really challenging to find great talent. Um, so, and we've now that's flipped on its head completely, and we're looking at potentially what nine percent unemployment market. So, the challenge mm. we out there, the challenge for the sector is how do we keep um, that talent in our sector and not lose it? Okay, so well, let's let's just push that question then a, a, a stage further. So, you've got the short term, hopefully, COVID impact, and then you've also got this longer term diversity mm. question that is hanging over the industry, and and there's a danger of sort of pushing these things together but let's just sort of take them separately because you've got let's let's focus on this this um generation you know a, a generation of people who are um in their first job let's say they're they're three years in how much do we know about them how much data do we have in terms of who is working on a day-to-day -day basis within 
agencies because obviously there is a there is a quite my expectation is that sport skews quite sort of white male and reasonably posh it would i be completely wrong in that or is that just is that a cliche or is there some does data support that sort of prejudice on my preconception you know i don't think there's ever been any research done into the actual makeup of the of, of, of the industry and then broken down across the sort of four pillars of the of the sports entertainment sector you are more likely to get more diversity inside consumer tech companies inside their partnerships and sponsorship teams um i think there is a there's there is a a, a drag effect on um and i will not mention the organization but on unpaid internships inside the sports and um, entertainment you know 20 years ago where frankly anyone from a a, a less privileged background uh, um would not be able to afford to do you know three months six months unpaid internships so that then lends itself to being a kind of white middle class um sector that yeah. you're going to be re- re- uh, re- uh, recruiting from i mean Things have moved on around internships, and and, and luckily now, most uh, as expected, they are now paid, um, and um, hopefully on more than the um, on the minimum wage. But you're right; the sector does attract middle class white um, male and females. Um, historically, you find you have found that the women going in around PR and events. Um, and you find that the young men tend to go in inside the more commercial side um, and work their way um, up. And of course, the 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 career pattern can be starting agency side and then moving in house into a brand or rights holder or to um, NGBs. And the truth is that the agency world is the funnel. I mean, that is the way you get into the sector is by doing a work placement, a paid internship, and then you move through the agency, and then you move off and on to um, working in other 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 areas of the sector. There is some government help out there for companies, so yeah. you know, Kickstart, which was a, which was the government sort of initiative, supporting companies to hire eighteen to twenty four year olds for six months, eighty percent of um, minimum wage for six months. Is that something that the sports you know, some of the, the major agencies or some of the employers in sport will take advantage of in your experience, or is it something that will pass them by? Well, they uh, look, I mean, we're going to have a problem if we don't. Um, uh, and I think there should be a real kind of shout out to anyone listening that is has got any kind of budget. And everyone can say they haven't got any budget, but the danger if we don't use this scheme or schemes like it is we will in two years time, there will not be the people in the sector that have two years experience. And in my experience, um, I think that organisations are not using their internship and graduate programmes as much this year. Um, And we need to use programmes like this, because they we just we will not have people with six months to a year's um, experience. And what this particular programme does is it enables companies to take someone on for six months and and that that's what these these that's what these youngsters need they need six months on their cv because if they've got six months then when the market picks up um it will be possible to get those people into permanent roles but if they've got no experience in the sector whatsoever you know we hear this phrase all the time oh well they need to hit the ground running so basically what we're saying is we've got no time to train anybody up so that's six months so even if an organization took on 
you know, two people for six months each. You know, you're everyone's doing their bit for the sector. And, you know, I keep seeing this hashtag all in this together. And I think, well, yeah, we are. That means we've all got to sort of do our do our bit. And if every organisation in sports took one youngster on for six months, paid them the minimum wage and topped them up to minimum, minimum wage isn't very much. Um, it's, um, you know, 12 grand a year or something, 13 grand a year. So if we top them up a bit to even earning 16, 17 grand um, over a six month period, at least that's going to keep some people in the sector. And, and as the other flip side to that is. You know, please make sure that the people you are offering these um, six month placements to um, open the doors to people from 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 wider backgrounds. Um, don't just make it a friend of a friend's, you know, son or daughter that left Loughborough this year, um, because we need to, to use this, these sorts of programs to to get people into the sector from a much more diverse background. And I mean, lower socioeconomic and I mean, from a black, Asian, minority ethnic background because we do not have enough diversity in the sports marketing sector it is still very white middle class male at the top we're making inroads on gender um and i'm i'm specifically because through bame 2020 my work with bame 2020 i specifically look at at gender and at um at black asian minority um ethnic how do you do it what do you what what you've been talking about this for a long time and you've 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 been um you know there's there's a danger that people like me come along with a podcast and say oh you know what should we do about this but you've been you've been talking about this for for years what should we do what what is the is it just a cultural issue that is going to be so slow to to change or is there something that the organizations can do well i mean i'll come on to no turning back in a minute which we're about to uh, to launch but you know i think the first thing that all leaders in the sports sector need to do is read a great book by robin d'angelo a female it's a white american female called white fragility and what the book is about and it is it is it is a challenging book for anyone white to read um, and it basically focuses on the inability of white people to tolerate racial stress, conversations about racism or race. And what the book is about really is about prejudice and power. And it talks about racism as a system rather than a slur. And I don't want to go into it anymore, you know, particularly because it, you need to read it. But I think, you know, this kind of change of mindset starts at the very, very top of an organization and it's not about an equal opportunities policy it's not about a diversity and inclusion policy it is about systemic change inside wider society first of all and the way our organizations are run and governed but also um, about a mindset starts it starts with the leaders and too many organizations simply um, recruit a diversity and inclusion officer um, that is often black asian minority ethnic and it's kind of okay well you you know it's all down to you to make the change and actually the change has to start with a mindset and an ability for leadership to actually be able to talk about race without getting defensive hurt upset um whatever but um that that's the first start is 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 to actually for us us white people to actually um to to be curious and to want to educate ourselves about what it is like um working and living in a in a predominantly um, white sector, um, 
So that's the first thing. Um, the, 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 the second is, yes, sure, you can try and tackle it at the top. I mean, I, think Sally, I listened to that podcast and Sally, um, I think, mentioned there's five black or black women or black women, five black people, I think, on the boards of governing bodies. I did check in with Sport England yesterday, actually, and I think it's more than that. They're about to publish their latest um, results. You can start at um, at, at non-exec level. Um, that's a kind of that, that's with the with the whole female gender issue. That's how um, we've managed to get whatever it is 32 percent onto boards of FTSE FTSE um, one hundred companies. But um, you you've kind of got to, and you can also look at entry level. But the the, the point this is where I've come on to no turning back because BAME twenty twenty which is a movement I set up with Adrian Walcott four years ago. It's specifically focused on 20% um, of people from a, an Asian, a, a black Asian minority ethnic background coming into the marketing, communications and sports marketing sector and keeping that 20% in right to the very top jobs. And any research that's been done, we find that we have a leaky bucket, i.e. people are not necessarily staying in the sector, even if we introduce them in at entry level um that they 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 may leave um within the first two to eight years and um, when you look at the qu quantitative um sort of studies um uh, or research and the one that's just been done by the um cipr quite recently on race in the workplace and it, it's clear that there's 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 it's because of a non-inclusive culture that is the most common thing that is cited i don't see people like me in the workplace um there's the sort of microaggressions on a day-to-day -day basis that need to be talked about that aren't really talked about. I don't feel comfortable, therefore I will try and, you know, I will either move out of the sector or I will need, I need to go and try working for um, another organisation. So we're launching No Turning Back um, at the moment and No Turning Back 2020, we're really saying 2020 is the year for No Turning Back after everything that's happened with Black Lives Matters. We've been hearing... Um, most of what's come out of the Black Lives Matters, um, you know, sort of tsunami of feeling, uh, we've been hearing at our BAME 2020 events over the last um, four years. We've been running a, an events uh, program called Let's Be Bold about the subject of race. Um, so no turning back. 2020 is about is about saying, OK, look, enough is enough. Um, if you if we, we are. To, to run the, the 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 no turning back kind of strap line um, next to your next to your brand's name or your organisation's name, you're going to need to do two things. One, you need to take a, an inclusive values order audit to demonstrate to people from um, diverse backgrounds that your organisation is inclusive. And if it isn't inclusive now that it's on the journey to being inclusive, and then to really commit to only using third-party recruiters and search consultancies that have a diverse portfolio of candidates of a minimum of 15% from a non-white background and that they need to evidence that. Um, there are ways of, you know, I've run a recruitment consultancy for, for 16 years. You, 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 I hear stuff like, oh, it's not GDPR compliant. You can monitor the diversity of background of your candidates um, in, an, in an anonymous way and every recruitment consultancy can measure um, its candidate portfolio because really recruitment consultancies, third-party recruiters and in-house recruiters, they're part of the solution as well as being part of the problem. 
Um, and, you know, what we hear all the time from companies is, oh, can you find me a diverse shortlist um, at, I don't know, eight years experience level? And our, our, our reaction is, well, we'd love to, but they're not staying in the sector. So we, we it's very difficult to find people from diverse backgrounds. We have to work harder at our organisations being more inclusive, and then we'll get some diversity to actually stay in our sector to um, to the very top jobs. So we have to get better at managing more inclusive organisations. And that way we will keep um, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic talent in the sector. I think the second point is we have to entice more people from diverse backgrounds into our sector in the first place. Um, and you know, there's things like writing inclusive job specs, writing inclusive ads that go out on job boards. There are ways to write, there's a way to write copy that will be more inclusive than less inclusive. Um, and um, where you advertise and, you know, how you communicate, if you communicate on, on, on LinkedIn, for example, and having grassroots programs inside your organizations. Um, there are all sorts of things that organisations can do to attract a more diverse talent um, portfolio. But I think the key thing about no turning back is that they will not stay unless it's an inclusive, um, inclusive environment. And for too long, there are too many recruitment companies that have had kind of a stranglehold on certain, particularly the sports sector, um, that really don't do enough, I don't think, to, this is my opinion only, um, they, don't, um, they don't do enough to, and work hard and invest time and money into attracting candidates into their portfolio that do not come from middle class white background. In terms of, of the, you know, you mentioned right at the beginning there that no one is measuring, you know, the the, the sports business sort of audience uh, workforce. Is there a is there a cross or you know industry organisation that could and should be doing that? <laughs> well, I've already spoken to the people that you're probably thinking about um yeah well yes um i think that the, the, the i think the sector needs to come together together um and 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 get that um and get that information um so you know there are you know cipr is um is responsible you know for the for the, for the public relations sector you've got the Chartered institute of marketing you've got the ipa you know, the IPA and the CIPR do do those sorts of um, that sort of research. And I really think the sports um, and entertainment sector should be doing absolutely should be doing that um, that research, because I think we'd be really shocked. Um, the stats for the overall marketing and communication sector, I think, and that's in-house as well as as well as agencies, probably hovers at about 14 percent at the very most. And I think mm -hmm. the sports marketing sector. I would think it's about 8% from a black, Asian, minority, ethnic background. Organisations want data analytics. They want AI. They want yeah. all sorts of, of particular skill sets. And there's a couple of things there. One is where do they get those from? And secondly, how much do they cost? Are they, is there going to, I'm interested in the sort of salary levels that are going to be required and what that means for the costs side of a sports business. Because my assumption is obviously that, if you're going to, if you want to, everyone talks about, you know, we need to be going direct to our consumer. That comes with a whole lots of decisions about um, being a digital organization, which will lead you into having data analytics. Those things don't come cheap. And so the cost of making that shift on a micro level comes back to, okay, how much are you paying per role for these 
things. So again, what's your take on that question in terms of the how easy it's going to be sh- to shift from a sort of analog sports business to a digital sports business? Well, I think, um, I mean, you're right. You look at the rise of two circles. And I mean, Matt and the team there, since they very first started, they, they used us actually to, 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 to find all their, they, I mean, they were very, very clever. They are very, very clever. They, um, and I can remember the conversation really well. It was about, we need to scale up quickly. How are we going to do this? And they took on very clever um, that had left brain and right brain thinking. They all had to have a minimum of maths. I think it was the maths A-level at, at the very beginning. And they built those, all, those people up and lo- loads of them are still there. And there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a chap on their board who we took out of a management consultancy, right, who was passionate about working in sports. And he had all of that strategic and kind of insights and analytics background and been trained by one of the top four consultancies. And I think we will see more of that. And I'm already speaking to um, a couple of organizations that used to take their people in their commercial team from business to business sales and they are now going to be looking at taking people from management consultancies and they will end up paying about £60,000 salary for somebody with about five years experience six years experience so yeah you're right that 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 is a that is that you know, that's an expensive um that's an expensive hire because normally you you could probably for 60,000 um probably get somebody that's got eight years nine years experience mm. um so i think there'll be more um movement across i mean obviously we did see movement from the banking sector corporate finance law and management consultancy during um london 2012 and a lot of those people we all know who they are they're still in the sector and some of them are commercial directors ceos of um, sports organizations so we have always seen a migration from professional services but i think that management consultancy the skill set there because they're client facing I mean, the one of the challenges about bringing across to professional services that they they do need to have, if particularly if they're working, um, you know, age agencies or managing agencies, they will need to have that client servicing um, uh, piece. Um, I think on I think e-commerce. I think historically the sports sector has been a bit snooty about moving people across from other sectors, um, uh, um, and. I am working on a brief at the moment where they are specifically, it's an e-commerce digital um, strategic director role. Um, it will be paying about 150000 um, It is for a senior player and that person will probably come from a retail background um, combined with a, 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 a financial, a, a digital financial services, so online financial services um, background. So I think we'll see more opportunity for people from uh, outside the sports marketing sector, um, you know, retail brand, um, FMCG, um, consumer tech to come into the um, sports sector because of their digital platform, e-commerce and partnerships um, experience. And you're absolutely right. People want the experience across paid, owned, earned and shared. and you need to have the you need to have integration of, of of all of them. I mean, I did speak at an ESSA conference about six years ago about the need for particularly sponsor the sponsorship career to to um, position itself as it, it 
very clearly inside the marketing and commercial team um, and, 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 and not pigeonhole itself in sponsorship because the, you know, the, 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 the sponsorship career gets narrower and narrower and narrower the further up the food chain you go. And at some point you've got to switch into having those marketing, there's much broader marketing um, and commercial skills um, um, as well. So you know, going back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, this is where um, agencies particularly and in-house teams have really got to, to look at the, 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 the model they're using, the business model and the makeup of the team. And I think that's where you can be more nimble because you can buy in expertise when you need it. Um, and that hub and spoke model, I think, could work really well um, um, for agencies where they need to buy in the um, you know, specific, um, specific talent. Well, just this hub and spoke thing, I, can, I get it as a, as a concept, but how, um, how does it affect sort of the culture of an organisation? Because quite often agencies are, you know, you, you pick an agency a lot of the time on, on culture. And if you, if you are basically a small group and then you're buying in freelance, you lose that sense of community, don't you, of the whole? That's, the, that's a real different management challenge, I guess. Well, I think we've lost that for good anyway. We've <laughs> lost it. I mean, everybody's grappling with the same thing. It's it's a massive leadership challenge. How do you keep the spirit and um, and the you know what what do you call it culture or the kind of DNA of your organisation? How do you keep people working effective together when they can't see each other anymore? Um, and this is and a hub and spoke model is. Um, I mean, it can work really well, but you have, you're right, you've got to work really, really hard at relationships. And one of the things that I've been speaking to quite a lot of leaders about when they're saying, you know, they're spending all their time on Zoom calls and they're knackered by the end of the day, um, is if you've already met people and you already know them um, and you've spent time with them, it's much easier to keep that going. Um, it is really difficult if you haven't met somebody and you you haven't seen how they behave in a meeting or you know that everyone's calling the water cooler moment I mean it's that is incredibly um it's incredibly challenging but I think the way we have all been working and being able to say right everybody into a breakout room let's have a brainstorm let's come up with some that is kind of that is we're never going to get that back it's gone um we're going to you think the office you think so you think it's the end of off the office and there's a, there's a real danger of extrapolating what you're, you're saying is that work will essentially be Zoom plus some of those terrible management away days, you know, sort of forming human pyramids and trust exercises. I don't look, I think it's going to be very, I think there's going to be some really exciting opportunities, um, re how we structure our offices in the future. Most people do not want to work at home five days a week. It is, you know, it's, it's, it's for all sorts of different reasons. Um, most of us like to go to a workplace. We like the interaction. We like the variety. Actually, for a lot of people, some of them actually even miss the bloody awful commute because it actually gives you downtime on the way back home and it differentiates yeah. home and the workplace. What will happen, though, I think, is that people realise they were on a hamster wheel and this this five, nine to five or nine to whatever, you know, ten, um, five days a week why does it have to be like that why does it have to be like that if it was possible to come in three days a week and to meet your peer group for specific meetings um two or three days a week 
Will there be, um, you know, time sharing on office space, for example? I've spoken to a number of organisations, smaller organisations, that are thinking about moving their head offices outside London. Um, they're thinking about doing a timeshare. I have that they'll come in on three days a week and share their offices as long as they could be deep cleaned, um, cleansed in between with um, other organisations. So we're not going to lose the collaborative teamwork um, and the ability to work together inside an office. I just think offices will look and feel slightly, uh, slightly different. Uh, and we're going to be going through that whole work it out uh, you know, suck it into the set over the next year um post um you know uh, uh, uh post covid there'll be lots of service office op- serviced office options that are going to arise out of this and i think that the that flexible thinking organizations could get a chance to actually reduce their fixed costs as well because let's face it a lot of people were never in the office anyway on a friday you're paying for office space for seven days of the week and actually you've only got a full office for four days. That doesn't really make great financial sense to me. So if we can cut it a different way, we could end up with um, um, with organisations that are, are looking at slightly different, um, you know, a fixed cost models as well. And that has to be a good thing. It's interesting. The, the I mean, working in an office in a typical office now, it's, you know, the open office, the move towards open office, which is a very sort of democratic idea. Everyone is sitting around in a circle. It does play. I thought it plays to sort of extroverts and actually um, quite often. And people are sort of reticent now even to take phone calls in an open office. So they don't want to be heard talking. Um, there's Culturally, it's quite interesting, I, I found, that, that when I started work in a, in a sort of newsroom, um, you learnt by being on the phone next to someone or someone more senior and you heard the shtick and you heard all of that stuff going on. And that's how there was much less formal sort of teaching or mm. training, mm. but actually there was a great deal more informal teaching, good and bad. And that's, mm. you know, that's, mm. you could argue the toss mm. about that. You pick up bad habits as mm. well as good ones. But I think there's a sort of, I, I did come away from my most recent experience of, of open office working, completely open office working which I felt it didn't, it wasn't very effective. And it, it wasn't, um, although it sort of seemed to be democratic and, and it, it, it meant that actually the, the people who want to get on with something or had ideas to contribute but weren't extroverts, it was quite hard to get them involved. You know, it's, it, there's a sort of sense that I was o- a bit over open offices, I must say. I, want, I was, I was going to head back to my sort of glass panelled office with my, uh, you know, filing cabinet what do you think is well, that is that complete madness or am no, i no, no, i think you're i think that people are saying that this um it's working from home and just the, the, the has actually played into played in, in to extrovert introverts um introverts are um because they they do get their voice on a zoom call that's managed properly um obviously it can go very wrong you'll be interrupting the whole time but um introverts i think that open plan offices can often uh, play against introverts because then that they are and we're generalizing here a bit but that they, they they won't necessarily interrupt they won't necessarily muscle in and put their opinion forwards and i think if you're if you're if you're working if you are working remotely um it, it, if you've got a good um chair they will make sure everybody speaks um and I think that you can do a phone call if you're an introvert. You, you, you can do a phone call and you can do a Zoom or you can do whatever you use, Teams. 
on a one-to-one or a, or a, a one-to-two-to-three basis, and and it will bring. It's possibly easier. Um, I think it's bringing. In, it's in. It's easier for. I'm not saying it's easier for introverts, but I think it's bringing. It can. The open plan office can be. Can make it difficult for introverts. Definitely. Yeah. One, there's a brilliant book called Quiet by Susan Cain, which yep. I recommend about, you know, um, this issue. But but there's a, there's a I, I did sense, I think, and probably overly influenced by um, Susan Cain's book. I do think, oh, yeah, I think open offices, I think I've probably had enough of them. Well, you see, we may go back, you see, there, to, but we're going to have to go back because open plan offices are going to breed the virus. So we're going to have to go back to slightly more contained environments. And if you think about it, there's going to be uh, less people in a big amount of space. So people are going to have to meet more, you know, more formally probably than they have done because you can't just suddenly go into a breakout group with 10 of you. You're going to have to, you're going to have to keep some social um social distancing i think with onboarding new people i mean what you just said about the osmosis way of learning so you watch and listen i mean that's interesting in itself because if you're hiring people from diverse backgrounds you have to be incredibly culturally aware as to you know if you've got an introvert for example how do you get them up to speed if they're not necessarily going to be um you know asking um, all the questions and uh, uh, mm. but actually onboarding when you're not in the office, um, you know, because you can have people sitting in. I mean, I'm doing it at the moment with um, with with some of my team. If I have a a, a call with a with a, with a client, I will ask someone to come and sit in on that, and they will be passive in the meeting because they're learning through the questions I'm asking, and then we do a debrief afterwards. So that sort of one one on one coaching, I think, is actually almost becomes easier when you're working remotely because if you're doing immediately ask it you're singling someone out to come and spend some time with the boss and that you know then be fair to you know it's it's got to be so actually you can when you're when you're training remotely i think you can actually get people up to speed even even more um even more quickly but i think that the big open plan offices of, of, of what we're used to are going to change dramatically because of social distancing anyway oh that's good that's good news some good news. Some good COVID news. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the the other, I mean, sort of uh, just finishing off now. But the the, the, uh, the Zoom culture thing is interesting because it has changed behaviours. Because people sort of the setting up of a Zoom call is because like, it's become a new meeting, isn't it? And and it's like a sort of and you have to block out half an hour and people just talk forever. It's a really weird weird working environment. Oh, have you found that you have to have the hand though? You've got the hand. You know the hand. You raise your hand. No. <laughs> okay. So on the Zoom, there's a hand. You can raise your hand when you want to say something. And we use the hand for when someone needs to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you, run a, you run a tight ship over there, I can tell. I can promise you. I mean, you have to find, you have to try and find some... Um, so, I mean, the, the great thing about this whole thing has been that I think it's really shown the, the kind of humanity. Um, and uh, you know, the sports marketing sector is full of amazing people, fantastic people. Um, and I, I don't think I've really ever met anybody that is it, it, everyone's driven, everyone's passionate about what they do. They're all in the sports sector because they, you know, they, they love and they want to make a difference to, um, to the sector. I think we sometimes you know, struggle as a, as a sector to actually work hard enough to 
make sure it represents the society we live and work in whole. And that's the biggest challenge for the sector, um, um, I, I think, in the next um, five years. Okay. Well, that's a good time. I like that. I like a, I like a Churchillian end to a podcast. It's good. <laughs> There's a, there's a, <laughs> it makes me, it makes me feel better. It makes everyone feel better. But in the time, in Amanda, thank you very much. I, as I say, I was looking forward to having the conversation and you didn't disappoint and there's loads in there. And I, I think just the nature of doing podcasts on a, on a regular basis, you get threads and threads of conversations, which we can then follow up. And um, one thing I'd like, if, can you, what do people do? You mentioned no turning back and, and BAME 2020. What, if people want more information, what can they do? Can they just get hold of you via your website? Um, so they can either email um, BAME2020, uh, which is B-A-M-E 2020 at F1recruitment.com. Um, or they can email me at um, Amanda at F1recruitment.com. And we're launching No Turning Back. Um, there'll be a page on the BAME2020 website um probably from the end of this week um but that's the quickest way to get in touch brilliant okay in the meantime be safe and be well and uh good luck okay thanks very much bye 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 